listening to the third and final part of Unexplained, Season 7, Episode 6, Look Me in the Eye. By early 1976, Annalisa Mikkel and her family remain convinced she is in the grip of a horrifying demonic possession. She has her good and bad days, or as she sees it, the days when Lucifer leaves her alone, and the days when he doesn't. In spite of that, Annalisa somehow manages to continue her studies at the University of Würzburg, but she is terrified at the thought of anyone there other than Peter and her best friend Anna, finding out the truth about what has been going on with her. And though she continues to visit physicians on the order of Father Alt, she never once mentions the voices that speak to her, or the hideous faces that reveal themselves at night, and she never once mentions the exorcisms. What scares her most is the thought that the doctors will simply judge her to be clinically insane, that they will cart her away, and strip her of any right to speak for herself, that she will be poked and prodded by clueless medics, intent on denying her the only thing that will bring her salvation, her faith. And perhaps there is something else that haunts Annalisa, something lingering in the psyche of a nation, still struggling to come to terms with its past, that her fears derive from. In September 1939, Adolf Hitler signed the National Euthanasia Decree, effectively ordering the death of any German citizen not deemed able enough. It was members of the church such as Catholic Bishop August von Galen, although less concerned when it came to the persecution of Jews, it should be said, who most vehemently opposed it, while notable medical professionals like Werner Hyde professor of psychiatry and neurology at Annalisa's own University of Würzburg, were some of its most ardent supporters. Between 1939 and 1945, in an operation dubbed Action T4, as many as 100,000 German citizens, considered physically or psychiatrically deficient, many of whom had already been sterilized by the state in a mass eugenics program, were murdered by their own government. Much of the technology and techniques developed in the implementation of Action T4 would later become instrumental in the perpetration of the Holocaust. In March, while at university, Annalisa attempts to board a train home when her body becomes oddly stiff and she is unable to move. She eventually makes her way to the local church and prays for an end to her suffering. But as she speaks, she is apparently gripped by an invisible force and, as horrified churchgoers look on, is seemingly thrown repeatedly onto her knees in an act of strange supplication. On hearing about this latest event, Annalisa's sister, Roswitha, travels to Würzburg to look after her when she arrives, she finds that Annalisa is now refusing to eat. One morning, her doormate Ursula walks into Annalisa's room and gasps in horror at the sight of the stricken young woman. Roswitha quickly ushers her out, but Ursula can't shake the image from her mind of Annalisa 
staring blankly into space, with skeletal arms contorted in front of her, in a strange, inhuman pose. As news of her shocking condition spreads quickly among her friends, they beg Annalisa to see a doctor, but Roswitha reassures them that everything is under control. After a brief stay with Father Alt that fails to rectify the situation, a weak and terribly emaciated Annalisa is collected from his residence by her parents and her boyfriend Peter, who carries her out to his car and drives her home. Once there, Annalisa's behaviour only becomes more erratic as the apparent voices in her head continue their unremitting torment. Some days she is found furiously rubbing her face or banging her head against the wall until it bleeds. She asks her family to tie her up at night and sometimes even during the day for fear of what the demons might make her do. Despite the deterioration in her condition, Annalisa attempts to reassure them all that everything will be fine because the Mother of God has also spoken to her telling her that it will all finally be over in July. In the meantime, Father Arnold Rents continues the exorcisms, but struggles to make contact with any apparent entities, and the sessions only seem to send Annalisa into violent fits of rage, while Peter and her father Josef do their best to restrain her. During one particularly brutal session, just like in the church weeks before, Annalisa falls to her knees, stands, then throws herself to the floor again until the skin splits and her knees bleed. She will repeat this 600 times before collapsing from exhaustion. At each fall, her mother Anna tries tearfully to comfort her daughter by throwing pillows and blankets under her bloodied legs, but she seems to miss them deliberately every time she hits the floor. After hearing about this troubling session, Father Alt is haunted by the descriptions of Annalisa's vicious genuflections and her continued refusal to eat. Knowing the family's reluctance to involve the medical profession, he secretly invites a physician friend, Dr. Richard Roth, to her next exorcism. One night, with the session already underway, Dr. Roth and Father Alt arrive at the Mikhail family home as the sound of inhuman shrieking can be heard coming from inside. A single lamp illuminates the hall as Alt leads Roth to the second floor, where he is then shown into Annalisa's room. He is horrified by what he sees. Annalisa's face is swollen and beaten, and her eyes are sunken into discoloured flesh. He watches as Father Rents stands holding his crucifix out toward her as he recites the Rituale Romanum. Moments later, a shaking Dr. Roth bolts from the room and rushes down to the kitchen. When Father Alt asks him if he will help them, the trembling Dr. Roth replies simply, there are no injections against the devil, before gathering his things and hurrying out of the house. When Father Alt returns a few days later, Annalisa tells him, with fading light in her eyes, 
that she fears it is still to get worse before it will get better. She reminds him that he mustn't be afraid though. All will be well in July, just as the Mother of God has deemed it so. Father Alt notices that one of Annalise's teeth has been chipped. When he leaves the house later that night, he sees a peculiar, mouth-shaped dent in the wall, and a glass panel appears to be missing from one of the doors. It was Annalisa, Yosef tells him. She had run through it, head first. Another five exorcisms take place before 30th of June, when, in a thick summer heat, Father Rents arrives at the Michel household for what will be the 67th exorcism since they started. As she has done in all 66 so far, Annalisa waits patiently and eagerly for her deliverance. Surrounded by her family, her parents Anna and Yosef, sisters Barbara and Roswitha, and Peter. And there is reason to be cheerful. Despite her temperature running at 39 degrees Celsius, tomorrow is the 1st of July, the moment, as Annalisa claims, has been foretold by the Mother of God that she will finally be released. Annalisa is placed on the sofa with barely the strength to lift her own body and once again, Father Rents begins the ritual. Within seconds, as the sacred words fall from his mouth, Annalisa begins to slither and moan, her teeth and withered gums gnashing at the sound of the prayers. On the bridge of her nose, a large open sore weeps from a wound sustained the previous week. As Rents continues, a voice cries out, but it is not the growl of a demon or a hiss of rage, but rather the gentle, sweet and exhausted voice of a young woman. Absolution, says Annalisa. Father Rents stops and asks, is she sure? Yes, she replies. It seems the last of the demons have finally left her body. But Rents knows all too well it could be a trap. After all, how do they know it is Annalisa who is speaking? Rents gives a nod to Peter, who then stares long and hard into Annalisa's eyes, just as she had asked him to do, so that he'll know if it is really her in her mind or not. Peter turns to Rents and confirms it really is Annalisa who is speaking. Rents turns back to the young woman. Finding a momentary reserve of strength, she drops from the couch and kneels on the floor. Father Rents makes the sign of the cross and places his hand on her head. God, the Father of mercies, through the death and resurrection of his Son, has reconciled the world to himself and sin. sent the Holy Spirit in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When it's finished, Annalisa is taken to her bed and left asleep. Her hopeful mother, Anna, follows Father Rents to the door. What happens now? She asks. Father Rents pats her arm and smiles. 
we pray. Later that night, as Anna makes her way to bed, a quiet voice comes out from Annalisa's room. Mama, I'm afraid, says Annalisa. An image flashes through Anna's mind. It's Annalisa, not as a young woman, but a young child, who wanted nothing but to make her mother happy. Anna goes to her daughter and sits with her until she falls asleep. Sometime later, a scream coming from Annalisa's room rips the silence of the night. Yosef rushes in to find Annalisa being seemingly thrown about her bed by an invisible force. He commands the demons to leave his daughter alone, and the violence eventually subsides. But it will be well into the following morning of July 1st, before Annalisa is finally calmed enough to fall asleep once more. A few hours later, outside, Venus, the morning star, having hung so bright and prominent in the sky, slowly fades before vanishing altogether into the warm light of the rising sun. At 7am, before heading off to work, Yosef makes sure to check in on his daughter and finds her sleeping peacefully. An hour later, he receives a phone call from Anna to inform him that Annalisa is dead. An autopsy on her body finds all her inner organs are healthy, including the brain, with no damage noted that might have caused any epileptic seizures. Her death is recorded as having been caused by starvation and possibly overexertion. The report also notes that her pupils were unusually dilated and that she had none of the bed sores or ulcerations of the skin associated with starvation, despite weighing only 68 pounds at the time of her death. She is buried a few days later on the fringes of Klingenberg Cemetery next to her sister, Martha. In the aftermath of Annalisa's death, the West German state charged her parents, Josef and Anna, along with fathers Arnold Rentz and Ernst Alt, with negligent homicide. Two years later, in a heavily publicised case, all four defendants were found guilty of manslaughter due to negligence and sentenced to a term of six months in prison later suspended, and three years probation. All four defendants maintained to the end that Annalisa had been the victim of a demonic possession. Much later, when Father Rentz's taped recordings of Annalisa's exorcisms are made public, an analysis of her pained and anguished responses apparently revealed some of them to be hitting two registers at the same time as if two people had been speaking simultaneously. Whatever way we look at the terrifying and tragic case of Annalisa Mikkel, 
it is impossible to escape the horror of it. If you believe in the existence of demonic spirits that can possess your mind, intent on condemning your soul to an eternity of damnation, then such a horror is self-explanatory. If you don't, we can still find a number of equally unsettling ideas lurking. During the exorcisms, when Annalisa yelled and fought with Father Rents, she claimed it was as if somebody had taken over her mind, leaving herself stranded on the edges of her psyche while someone else pulled her strings. If, like me, you find this notion terrifying, then perhaps it's best not to think too deeply on just what that self is exactly. We often talk of how our actions define us, that the choices we make, from our moral standpoints, to the clothes we wear, to even the partners we supposedly choose, all combine to form an impression of who we are. Yet, if we live in a deterministic universe, as many leading scientists and philosophers think, which, if any, of our decisions could we reasonably declare to have been made entirely of our own volition. To paraphrase Arthur Schopenhauer, you may have a thought and then act on that thought, but what thought to have that thought in the first place? Free will in the purest sense, a will that is completely free from any influence, does not exist. Through a combination of nature and nurture, even before we are born, we are, in a sense, programmed to behave in distinct ways. At a very basic level, our behaviour is controlled by the biological demands of our bodies. We eat because we're hungry, drink because we're thirsty, rest because we are tired. We could choose not to eat, drink or rest, but for the most part, the consequences of doing so prevent us from making such decisions. The neural networks in our brains that influence our behaviour, how quick we might be to get angry, or why we prefer oranges to apples, for example, are partly determined by genetic events, many of which take place before we are born, that constantly affect our behaviour. Epigenetic imprinting the way our biology processes how exactly our genes will influence our behaviour also takes place before we are born and can even continue during our lifetime, all without our control. Often, when we feel we are being freely assertive, our actions are in fact simply reactions to stimuli. Some believe the process known as priming is a profound case in point, demonstrating the way in which our behaviour can be manipulated by something as simple as word association. One striking example was revealed in a 2006 study conducted by psychologist Professor Kathleen Vose of the University of Minnesota. The study demonstrated that people who carry out tasks while being exposed to reminders of money, either through images placed near them on screens or the use of fake money left out in plain sight, were likely to be more self-sufficient. They were also less willing to help others in a series of later tasks they were asked to perform. And all this before we even take into consideration 
how our general outlook on life or our moral and religious beliefs are shaped by the environment we're brought up in and the social groups we predominantly interact with. We could argue that through education and raised awareness, we learn to recognize the ways in which our choices are being influenced by things we can't control, and in turn, learn to make better, more thoughtful choices. And as thinkers such as Daniel Dennett have proposed, maybe that's enough. As Dennett argues, even if we reject the purist's idea of free will, there are parameters within which we can retain a satisfactory degree of freedom that at least leaves us with, as he says, the varieties of free will worth wanting. In this sense, free will is possible if we understand it essentially as nothing but a useful fiction. In other words, although we should accept that we can't have full authority over our decisions, be it the biological impulses we can't control, like who we fall in love with, or the myriad ways in which our environments influence us, we might find we have enough choices to meaningfully affect outcomes, thereby providing a gratifying feeling of autonomy. But if we say that free will amounts to the number of options available to us within any given situation, how should we account for the way in which, for each of us, due to the influence of our individualistic, predetermined genetic makeup and the varied subjective experiences of our lives, those choices at our disposal will be different. Is it fair that one person can be penalized for a criminal act, for example, and be stigmatized for it, when so many of the things that led them to commit the act are completely out of their control? The simple answer is that we can't. The best we can do is agree collectively on what we deem to be acceptable behavior. Then we can negotiate the parameters of acceptability, either explicitly through the enforcement of laws or implicitly through tacitly agreed social mores. But what happens then when those parameters shift? The terror of becoming the victim of demonic possession is about much more than control. For the devout, the ultimate fear is that something fundamentally evil has taken over their soul, threatening to commit evil acts in their name or the sin of suicide, condemning them to hell in the process. Yet, if we are never truly in control of our actions, what might any of us be capable of? given the right set of circumstances. In July 1961, 23-year-old Bill Menold came across an advert in the New Haven Register, a Connecticut-based local paper, requesting persons needed for a study of memory with the offer of $4 for just one hour of your time. Having just recently left the army, Bill figured he could use the money, and since he would be in New Haven that day anyway, decided to put himself forward. A few days later, he arrived at Yale University's Interaction Laboratory, where he was introduced to another volunteer, an accountant named Mr. Wallace, and the experimenter, an officious-sounding man dressed in a grey lab coat 
who would be supervising the experiment. It was explained to Bill and Mr. Wallace that they were taking part in a study to examine the effects of punishment on learning ability. Then they drew straws to determine which roles they would take. Mr. Wallace was assigned the position of learner and taken into a room where, watched by Bill, he was strapped into an electric chair. Now in the role of teacher, Bill was taken to an adjacent room containing an electric shock generator that he was led to believe was hooked up to the electric chair. Under the watchful eye of the experimenter, Bill and Mr. Wallace, who were no longer able to see each other, proceeded to carry out a series of simple, word-based memory tests. All Bill then had to do was administer an electric shock whenever the learner, Mr. Wallace, got the answer wrong. With one additional instruction, each time this occurred, he was to increase the strength of the electric shocks. In his room, on the electric shock generator that Bill was controlling, there were 30 switches clearly marked with different levels of power, ranging from 15 volts, described as slight shock, to 450 volts, described as danger, severe shock. With the experiment underway, Bill dutifully increased the shocks by 15 volts with each wrong answer. Even when Mr. Wallace could be heard screaming in agony and demanding to be let out from the other side of the wall. At every scream, Bill would turn to the experimenter for guidance, each time being told calmly but forcefully to please continue. 210 volts, 255 volts, 330 volts, up it went until something occurred that Bill had not been prepared for. Mr. Wallace stopped responding. The young former soldier had been instructed earlier to treat a non-response as an incorrect answer, but was understandably concerned that something terrible had happened. He looked to the experimenter, who again asked him calmly to continue. Bill flicked the next switch, 435 volts. There was no response. Now utterly convinced that he'd killed Mr. Wallace, a horrified Bill looked again to the experimenter. The experiment requires we continue, he commanded flatly. Against all his better judgment, Bill flicked the highest and final switch on the generator. 450 volts. Thankfully for Bill, none of it was real. There were no electric shocks transmitted to Mr. Wallace, who it turned out wasn't an accountant at all, but a stooge who was part of the experiment, named Bob McDonough. Bill had unwittingly taken part in a hugely controversial experiment designed by psychologist Stanley Milgram to test our obedience to authority figures. When the truth of the Holocaust was exposed in the aftermath of the Second World War, Stanley Milgram, like many others, was left completely stunned as to how so many ordinary people could be convinced 
to perpetrate such acts. The Milgram experiment, as it came to be known, was conducted in the wake of the trial of Adolf Eichmann, who, as a member of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, played a leading role in the organisation of the Holocaust. Eichmann famously stated he should not be considered culpable for his actions, since he had merely been following orders. Eichmann's defence uncomfortably inferred that anyone in his situation could very well have made the same choices. Milgram set out to discover if there was any truth to this. Bill was one of 40 male subjects with varying occupations and levels of education who were tested. Prior to the study, Milgram asked 14 psychology majors to predict how many test subjects could be coerced into administering the highest level of shock, to which they gave the mean answer of 1.2%. The eventual answer was in fact 65%, more than half of all participants. And for me, it is here that we find the true horror. Often the only thing standing between us and the perpetrating of what we might consider evil acts is the tenacity of our fictitious social conventions and whether we are lucky enough either through a genetic predisposition or through developing the requisite attitude to willfully adhere to them, which in turn leaves us with the even more uncomfortable truth that far from so-called evil acts being an aberration of human behaviour, they are in fact entirely normative. The search for the truth of things has invigorated thinkers throughout the history of humankind and has become an especially fraught issue in our era of uncertainty characterised by fears over the impact of fake news and the increasing reliance on dispassionate algorithms to aggregate information. What rarely gets acknowledged is that the truth is not necessarily important to the function of humanity. In fact, we could reasonably say that in terms of how we model societies and come together to collectively operate, it might be irrelevant and in some ways even detrimental. In 2008, Professor Kathleen Vose, this time in collaboration with psychologist Jonathan Schooler of the University of California, carried out a fascinating study to test how belief in free will affects moral responsibility. Vose and Schooler gave two sets of participants a different passage to read from The Astonishing Hypothesis a 1994 book about the study of consciousness written by Nobel laureate and co-discoverer of DNA, Francis Crick. One passage asserted that, although we appear to have free will, in fact our choices have already been predetermined for us, while the other passage gave no mention of the concept. After completing a quick survey about their respective thoughts on the idea of free will, Participants were then asked to take a quick maths test with one caveat. Whenever a question appeared, they were asked to press the spacebar to prevent the answer appearing on the screen shortly after. Incredibly, 
those who read the passage dismissing free will cheated more often, with the level of cheating being higher the more sceptical the participant was about having it. Perhaps then with this in mind, provided you think cheating is an undesirable behaviour, there is reason to maintain the idea of free will, regardless of whether it is true or not. Ultimately, we may find that the extent to which we cling to the notions of free will and ownership of the self has far more to do with what we consider the purpose of life to be rather than any real truth as to who or what we are, something that is itself driven by pre-programmed genetic data and unconscious responses. Should we choose to see ourselves as all valid occupiers of a minutely small shared space in a vast universe that should do what we can to ensure as many of us as possible can experience a life that is worth living, or should we choose to act selfishly to survive and thrive at any cost? Or are we merely, in the words of true detectives Rusty Cole, just things that labour under the illusion of having a self, an accretion of sensory experience and feelings, programmed with total assurance that we are each somebody, when in fact everybody is nobody? This episode was written by Richard McLean Smith. Unexplained, the book and audiobook, with stories never before featured on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones and other bookstores. Please subscribe to and rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can find out more at unexplainedpodcast.com and reach us online through Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast. <laughs>